Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 8th, 2021. It is currently 4.44 p.m. Central Time. Welcome. You know where I'm coming to you live from, the Empty Sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, Ovalo, Texas. And let me just say, and let me apologize. Did I say Wednesday? I think I said Wednesday. Welcome, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 8th. I'm sorry. I'm a little bit distracted. I'm a little bit distracted because I I got an email here and I'm trying, I'm trying to, trying to organize my thoughts here. I I, want to just say this right from the beginning. This is going to be an initial discussion. I don't have everything figured out here. I'm still trying to process this. So I'm going to put forth an idea that is put, that is presented here in an email. I did just a, I I, I did look up one quick thing just to have a definition ready in case we we need it. Um, But I, I need you to put your thinking caps on and I need you to realize this is just kind of like the initial thoughts here. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce this to you. Just like it showed up in my email inbox. So because it was introduced to me, then I'm going to take it and share it with you. And then we will we will see where the discussion goes. It will be interesting to see different perspectives and different thoughts. You can always email me your perspective and thoughts at newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I would just say that before you like... You immediately, for some, as soon as we start talking about this, you may immediately start going, okay, you may start, you know, typing away, ready to send me that email or just slow down. Let's, let's work through this and see what conclusions we can come to. What we may do is just present this issue here, and then we will have to work through it maybe at a later time. I love doing that. If, I love even doing that in my preaching. I'm like, I'm, I love to stand by in the pulpit going, okay, guys, here's this perspective. What do you think? Come back next week and we'll start looking at this from every known perspective under the sun, right? And so then everybody leaves like, so what am I supposed to think about it? I'm not telling you, go think about it and then we'll work through it together. I love presenting theological issues to people, and then struggling with them together, trying to figure out the truth, trying to understand. It's easy just to turn on the microphone and go, okay, guys, this is the way you should think. Every other way of thinking is wrong. Okay. It's easy to do that. It's more difficult to say, okay, guys, here's this perspective. What do you think? Let's work through it. Let's look at it. Let's, let's think about this. Let's look at it from this perspective. Let's look at it from this perspective. Now, by the time I'm done, I got no problem saying, all right, I think that perspective is wrong. But I always try to at least start off by going, okay, let's look at it. Let's consider it. Let's be fair with it and, and, and work my way through it. Sometimes I think people are ready for me to just start off with, no, but I, I don't like to do that because I, I, because, I, because I always have to challenge myself because maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe my initial thoughts are wrong. So by always challenging myself every single time is the way I can hopefully grow and correct past mistakes. So are you ready? Here we go. Let's start with a very just basic question. Are you familiar with replacement theology? Are you, are you familiar with it? Can you define it? 
And maybe, maybe there will be people who will listen to this. You may actually hold to replacement theology. And if you do, I, I can understand. I can understand that. I, I, I've been not maybe all the way there, but I've definitely been influenced by it in, in times past. Um, do you think that's the correct way of looking at the Bible? And here's a very, so here's another question. So are you familiar with replacement theology? Do you, can you define what replacement theology is? Do you hold to replacement theology? And what does it have to do with Matthew chapter 1, verse 21? Does it have any? Now, some of you, stop, stop. Some of you are already running to go look at Matthew 1, Stop doing that. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, I know I, from, a, from a pastor's perspective, sometimes I know that I cannot mention that. Like, I'll be getting ready to mention something in a sermon. I'm like, oh, don't mention it. Because as soon as I mention it, they'll just go look and then everyone will be looking down, not even listening to anything I'm saying. Sometimes when I'm like, grab the Bible dictionary, I always regret it because I know as soon as I say that, everyone's looking at the Bible dictionary and not listening to me anymore. I was like, so, so don't look at it yet. Let's just deal with a basic, very simple, 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 simple definition of replacement theology. Replacement theology essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plans, or God's plan, I should say. Adherents of replacement theology believe the Jews are no longer God's chosen people, and God does not have a specific future plan for the nation of Israel. Israel. All right. Now, this has come from gotquestions.org because it's just always a simple place to, to get a, a quick definition of something. They, they go on to say here, among the different views of this relationship between the church and Israel um, are the church has replaced Israel, replacement th- theology. The church is an expansion of Israel, covenant theology, or the church is completely different and distinct from Israel dispensationalism slash premillennialism. So the church, so replacement theology, you can have the church completely replaced it, or you can have within uh, covenant theology, the church is an expansion of Israel, or you have the church is completely different from and distinct from Israel, which would be more dispensational or premillennial. Now let's. Now this is important. One of the reasons I'm I'm, I'm throwing this in for I'm, the reason I'm covering this now is one I got an email, but a couple of reasons. Number one, one of the things we're supposed to be studying this week, really, if you look if you use our Bible study exercise curriculum, um, is we're not only Isaiah seven. We're also working on Isaiah eight, but the curriculum deals with Matthew one eighteen and following. So it's it's a passage that you should have already looked at and possibly read over the last few days. So I I wanted to talk about it because it relates to that passage. I want to talk about it. And in our study in Romans, we'll be moving to Romans chapter nine, which we're going to get all day. I mean, it's going to be just, it's going to be months and months and months of dealing with questions, once again, pertaining to Israel. How do we understand it? Is Israel something... Is it is Israel the nation distinct from the church, or is there? Can we throw within this concept spiritual Israel, which replaced the national, which which replaced national Israel? There are all of these questions. Now, here's what I hate. Um, if let's say that you're like, well, wait a minute, I think God may still have a plan for Israel, and I think Israel the nation is distinct from the church. I don't know about this whole spiritual Israel concept. Immediately, you're a full blown dispensationalist. You probably love left behind. It's like, whoa, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. 
Let's let's talk about this, all right? So before we throw a label on someone, I think the question just has to be, what do we do with Israel as, as it's mentioned in the Bible? Sorry, I had to cough. So I, I'm, I'm so thankful that this microphone has a very good mute mic, a mute button on the mic. Uh, it's right there in front of me. So I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. I just push the button and then I can cough and it's not, doesn't come across unprofessional. All right, here we go. So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking a little bit about replacement theology and just, I just want to make it clear just because you may read the Bible and go, well, you know what? I, I don't think I can just ignore that prophecy. And I think that prophecy is to the nation Israel. I, I, I don't know if Israel just was done away with and, and now is replaced by the church. I, just because someone has those questions and are moving that direction, don't just, what, what some people do, in the re, at least in the reform camp or over there in covenant theology, if you even raise these questions, they almost mock you as you're an uneducated idiot who probably loves left behind and you're one of those dispensationalists and almost like, whoa, slow down, okay? Maybe people just have some legitimate questions and how to understand the Bible, and they've got questions, say, even in the book of Isaiah. Because if you, if I've, I've challenged everyone to do this a million times, get you a Matthew Henry commentary, read the book of Isaiah, and read Matthew Henry over and over and over. He'll be like, no, that's the church. That's the church. That's the church. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. What happened to Israel? What happened to Israel? They're just gone. They're just replaced. All of these pro. So, so the, the curse and judgment is on national Israel, but the promise is for the church. When did the church replace Israel? Asking that question doesn't make you a full-blown supporter of left behind. It just means you have questions. That, to me, it's about hermeneutics. It's about, well, wait, what's, what's a consistent hermeneutic in handling, say, the book of Isaiah? If that's if that's a legitimate nation and a legitimate promise to a legitimate nation or a legitimate warning or a le- le- legitimate warning of judgment coming upon that legitimate nation and actual physical judgment came upon them, then do I not interpret the promise as legitimate and accurate and, ac- and an actual promise that will literally take place? When I say legitimate or literal, you know, when, it, when it says a virgin will conceive and bear a child, is that a legitimate virgin having a legitimate child? Or do I spiritualize that all day? So, so I think those are, those are, are very important questions. But we're going to see what this has to do with Matthew 121 and replacement theology. All right? So here we go. Here's the email I received. Okay? Here is the title. What did the angel mean? He will save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. Right underneath that title is kind of a, it's like a one of those like little posters that you could uh, create, uh, you know, to post somewhere on the internet. So on the back, it's like this beautiful, I want to assume it's a sunset, kind of a pinkish clouds, uh, snow-covered mountains. And on top of that are these words. When God promised that Jesus will save his people from their sins, was he guaranteeing spiritual victory for every Christian? Now, that's a whole different question. That doesn't even have anything to do with replacement theology. This is saying, well, okay, when it says Jesus will save his people from his sins, does that mean, because this is how most pastors will teach it. Jesus came to save you from your sins. The penalty of sin, the punishment of sin, right? 
and the power of sin. The power of sin is broken in your life. You can now live free from sin. You can live in victory. You can be godly. You can be holy. And then at some point, you just got to keep waiting for it after they're hyping it up and everybody in the church is going, amen, amen. And everybody's having a great time. At some point, he will say, but you won't be perfect. Well, 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 so I'm free, but I won't be perfect. If I'm free, shouldn't I then have the ability to be perfect? The minute you say I'm free from the power of sin, I should then possess the ability to be perfect. Because if I don't have the ability to be perfect, then clearly sin still has enough power over me to keep me from perfection. So can you make up your mind? Okay, but that's a whole different question. Maybe this email is going to talk about that as well. I just want to know what does this have to do with replacement theology? And why am I even mentioning it? Because guess what? The first paragraph begins with this question. Have you ever heard of something called replacement theology? Okay, see why I started with that question? Have you ever heard of something called replacement theology? Now, see, I wish everybody was here in the sanctuary because I would ask everyone in the church, how many here have heard of replacement theology? Everyone in Victory Baptist Church better raise their hands because we've had countless years of study trying to figure out about Israel, the nature of Israel, Israel distinct from the church, uh, millennial, we've, we've dealt with all, covenant theology. We've dealt with all of these issues. We spent like forever, we, I mean, forever working on all of this, okay? So uh, everybody in my church should. I don't know the people currently listening, if they've heard of replacement theology, but this is very critical to this discussion. All right, here we go. So have you ever heard of something called replacement theology? Okay, good of it. All right, so well, I got I got one person listening live who says they've heard of it. Okay, so that's good. Now, now that 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 should make this easy. If the people currently listening live, and I know the people at Victory Baptist Church who will hear this whenever they get to it, I know they know of it. Then it will be very easy to go. Okay, replacement theology, Matthew one twenty one. Hopefully, we can kind of figure out. Okay, what do we do with this? Are we doing this wrong? Are we handling Matthew one twenty one wrong? And what does that have to do with replacement theology? For others who don't know what replacement theology is, I got to give them some kind of background to walk us into this discussion. All right, here's how they define it. It is a view, it is the view, they should say, that the church replaces Israel and God's eternal plan. The promises made to Israel about a people, a nation, and a land will be fulfilled indirectly by the church. Now, again, I, I just I would just offer this to you, right? You don't have to go buy a lot of systematic theologies and a lot of books on eschatology. Just get the Matthew Henry commentary and just, just start reading Isaiah and look at what how, how many times he mentions the church. I've had my congregation do this multiple times, like, that's the church, that's the church, that's the, everything's the church. And you're like, what happened to Israel? What happened to Judah? What just happened here, right? So even, even when you talk about the new covenant promised in Jeremiah, it's promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How do people handle that? They, get, they, they, they leave out Israel and Judah really quick from that and make it about the church. You've got to, you've, those are, those are, look, that's not about eschatology. Everyone gets caught up in the, to the connection to eschatology. Like, oh, I don't want to be a part of the left behind people. And I don't want, I, I don't, don't worry about that. Worry about, wait a minute, what's the correct hermeneutic in which to interpret this? Who cares where it leads you from an es- from a viewpoint of eschatology? Who cares? Worry about having an eschatology that is consistent throughout, say, the book of Isaiah. Well, I, I interpret that as literal Israel. 
I interpreted that as literal Israel. When did that become the church? Now, if you can, if you can explain where the text says no longer little, literal Israel, now spiritual Israel, the church, whenever you can identify when it makes that jump, then okay, we can talk. But if you can't, I'm going to be like, well, wait a minute. When, so when they're punished, it's the nation. When they're promised, it's the church. Isn't that kind of convenient? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Hey, hey, as the church, we don't get any of the punishment. But we get all the promises. Now, you, that, and, and listen, this is someone who held to an all mill position for a long time. Okay, so I, I, I think these are just reasonable questions. All right, so let's read this again. In this view, replacement theology, the church replaces Israel and God's eternal plan. The promise made to Israel about a people, a nation, a land will be fulfilled indirectly by the church. But Israel is not God's chosen people today. Israel will not, not ever be the major world power. So they add a, a couple of things there. Now, let me just say, this also comes into play when you start talking about Israel being replaced. What about God, the doctrine of election? If God could elect and choose Israel and then replace them, then what does it say about him electing me? Could he just replace me? I, I think that's, again, these are just reasonable questions. I know I'm going to get the reformed covenant theology people who are going to just bomb, just going to go completely crazy on me. But just calm, take a deep breath, take a deep breath, okay? If you need to grab a Calvin commentary to make you feel better, hold on to it. And I'm not mocking reform theology as someone who holds to it, but in this area, I deviate a lot of from some reformed people here because I just like, I, I, don't, I don't know if this can work, but let's, let's see here. So the problem with that view, all right? Now, th- this is, obviously, this is being written from a perspective that rejects replacement theology. The problem with that view is that God is faithful to all his promises. Now, this is very important to me. I believe in the doctrine of election. And I believe if God chooses and elects and makes a covenant and makes a promise, he's going to keep that promise unless you say the promise was conditional and then that it wasn't by grace and it wasn't by election. It was by by works, basically. We could get into a whole discussion about that and how does that apply to Israel? And was there some promises to Israel that were conditional? And which one? Yeah, you can get a whole lengthy discussion there. If he failed to fulfill his promises to Israel, but chose instead to give those promises to others, then he could fail to fulfill his promise of everlasting life to you and me. If we, like Israel, went astray, then he could replace you and me with other people who would get those promises. That's at least a reasonable challenge. That's a reasonable challenge. I don't think that that's, look, there are times people will offer a challenge to say my view on the doctrine of election, right? You know, I believe in the basic, the the historical view of the doctrine of election, predestination, all right, calling, all of those that we've talked about it in Romans 8. Sometimes people will offer a challenge and I will have to acknowledge that is a very good challenge. That's a very good question. Sometimes I'll be like, no, that question completely misunderstands the entire point. So sometimes there's a good challenge. I think this is reasonable to ask, well, wait a minute. If God didn't keep his promise to them, why should I trust any of his promises? Now that that's reasonable. I don't I don't think that that's being unfair or being foolish or being dumb or anything along those lines. Now here we go. This is where it's going to get interesting, right? Most people think Matthew 1:21 is saying essentially the same thing as Jesus himself said 
as Jesus himself said in John 3.16. They think that Joseph was being told that the child to be born to his virgin wife, fiance in our modern terms, Mary, will, will give eternal salvation, forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. Now, I'm going to grab my Bible really quick. Matthew 1.21. Let's look at it. Matthew 1.21. Here we go. Start in verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make a public example, was minded to put her away, basically in a private way, privily put her away. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to make unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, is that a promise that, hey, he's going to save anyone who believes from their sins? Is that, is that what is being said there? I think that's typically how people read it. Hey, it's Christmas time. Jesus, he saves people from their sins, and that's all anyone who believes. It may, maybe, could it be? Well, what are they going to do with it? Now that they've mentioned replacement theology, I have a feeling now that this is getting ready to take a very interesting, weird turn. Let, let's go through this, all right? Okay. For example, right? So many believe that basically what he is saying is that, that Jesus will give eternal salvation, forgiveness of all sins, of sins to all who believe in him. For example, see the discussions of Matthew 121 by Leon Morris and R.T. France and their commentaries on Matthew. Both men take this as a general reference to eternal salvation from hell. While it is certain, well, while it is certainly true that Jesus indeed give everlasting life to all who believe in him, that is not the point of this Christmas text. Dun, 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 dun. Dramatic music. Whoa, wait a minute. They're saying that's not what's being taught in Matthew 121. I'm interested. Inquiring minds want to know, right? Hmm, I'm interested. Okay, I'm hoping that I'm seeing your head. You're acknowledging that you're interested as well. So what, if it's not about everyone being, basically anyone who believes can have their sins forgiven. If it's not about that, then what is it specifically referencing in this context, does it have a specific application first before we take it anywhere else? Now, I, this is very interesting because Matthew one twenty one would be very much connected to Isaiah chapter 7, right? Isaiah chapter 8, where we see Ahaz, Judah, their problems, okay, right? So there, there's an Israel-Judah connection there. Is, is that where they're going to go with this? I don't know. Let's let's see. All right, here we go. Now, I, I'm going to read that sentence again. While it is certainly true that Jesus indeed gives everlasting life to all who believe in him, that is not the point of the Christmas text. Guess how many times 
in the entire Bible, the expression saved from sins occurs. The expression saved from sins occurs only in Matthew 121 in the entire Bible. Now, stop. You can write that down as a question. Verification is needed, right? Because I, I have not looked it up recently to verify if that exact, how many times that exact phrase is used, right? Saved from sins. I, I, I think there's some similar phrases, but okay. All right, let, let's, just, let's just play along for now, all right? Um, whether it's used once or whether or not, I don't know if that has a massive, uh, I don't know if that has a massive impact on this, but let, let's, let's just go along with their concept here. God, through an angel, is telling Joseph something which is actually quite different from the message Jesus himself would later tell in John 3.16. If we grasp what the angel told Joseph that day, it will open our understanding to the fullness of the salvation which Jesus came to accomplish. Let's begin considering what his people means. Oh, now this, now I think I know where they're going, right? All right, so Matthew 121, let me read it again. Now I'm going to emphasize it. And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now I could go a couple of directions here. His people, the elect, he's going to save the elect from their sins. All right, that's going kind of staying true to kind of a reform perspective or his people, all those who believe, right? All those who believe on their own going for a more Arminian kind of view. All right. Or his people referencing Israel. Is that possible or is that heretical? I'm just so I that those those are only the three ways I I can't think of a third option there right? a fourth option right it's either the elect his people are the elect his people are anyone who believes he's going to save anyone who believes and that just refers to anyone right who believes uh, and their their belief they're basically believing on their own and that's how they become his people all right you could you could kind of make an argument there if you want to go that direction or his people refers to Israel which one do you think fits the context which one do you think fits the prophecy that this is fulfilling. I, I, I'm just throwing it out there, throwing it out there, all right? We almost need to connect this to the Bible study exercise for Romans 8, or Romans 8, Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 7. We really, I almost called this a Bible study exercise, Matthew 121, but I wanted, I wanted to put it in this way to bring everyone in to get people who may not, some people see Bible study exercise and they don't want to listen. So this may create a little bit more buzz. Trying to be smart uh, when you're putting something out there that you really want to get a lot of people to pay attention to. All right, here we go. So, um, okay, let's go. I'm going to back this up. So let's begin by considering what his people means. Most wrongly assume that the expression his people refers to all of mankind. I don't know if I would ever say it's all of mankind. I think it would always be limited. It'd have to be the elect or it'd have to be those who believe. I don't know. Uh, they give some examples. For example, um, Morris re- says this refers to Israel and Christians. France says it refers immediately to Israel, but ultimately Matthew expected a wider application. So two commentaries at least include Israel in it. So it includes Israel and Christians or 
other, other people. Okay, so, so that at least allows Israel to be a part of it. So I guess we could have an option. It's the elect. It's anyone who believes. It's Israel, or we could go with an app. We could go with another one. Number four, it doesn't include all of that. That that something to consider. Again, you got to you got to think this through. All right. So here we go. Um, they essentially think that his people in Matthew one twenty one is a synonym for the world in John three sixteen. But the world are not his people. We all know if we give it a moment's thought, who his people are. When we now. Yeah, if you say it's the whole world, you got a problem because the whole world, I mean, are the whole world his people? We often say if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. But in a, another way, we're all his people because, well, we are created in his image. So how, how do we, how do, could we make a good argument there? I know this, that when I am not a Christian, in a sense, I'm not his child. I'm not his people in the sense that I'm not in a re- redeemed relationship with God. In a sense, he's not my father. I'm, 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 I'm estranged. I'm, I'm, I'm separated from God. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think you have to say that it's the world. I think, I think that his people is limiting it to some, in some way, shape, or form. Again, something to consider. All right, let's see where they go with this. But the world are not his people. We all know if we get of a moment's thought who his people are. His people are Israel. Here's going to be their argument, their their defense of this position. His people refers to Israel in the Old Testament, often without the word Israel added after his people. The people, uh, his people, Israel. There are 26 references to his people in in the Psalms, uh, 12 in Isaiah, 9 in 2 Chronicles, 5 in the Minor Prophets, all referring to Israel. So his people, his people, sometimes it doesn't even say his people, Israel. It just says his people and the context would demand that that's referencing Israel. So let's go through these numbers again. His people refers to Israel in the Old Testament, often without the word Israel added after his people. His people, uh, his people, Israel. There are 26 references to his people in the Psalms. Uh, Okay, 26 references to his people in the Psalms, 12 in Isaiah, 9 in 2 Chronicles, Five in the minor prophets, all referring to Israel. His people also occurs and refers to Israel twice in Exodus, four times in Deuteronomy, once in Judges, and once in Ruth, three times in 1 Samuel, once in 2 Samuel, three times in 1 Kings, four in 1 Chronicles, and once in Ezra. All right, that's a lot of references. Now, we would have to verify, verify, if this was a typical church service and everybody would be here, I would have everyone grab their uh, concordances, blue letter Bible apps, and start looking it up. For now, we can just set this aside as something that we may want to verify how accurate that is. I think it's very fair to say that you've probably read the Old Testament enough to say, yeah, there's time and time again that when it says his people, we know that's referring to Israel. Right? Maybe not in every specific case, but there's plenty. I don't know if their numbers are exactly right, but I would say there are plenty of times that does occur. So is it possible that when it says he will save his people from their sins, that is a reference to Israel, not anything else is, is even in even thought about in that intended in Matthew 121 possibly. All right, let's continue. 
The expression, his people occurs three times in Romans, all refer, referring to the nation of Israel. Romans 11, 1, 2, and 15, 10. Now, Romans 11, we'll, when we get to 9, 10, and 11, it's just going to be some, some serious times of, of study when we get there. Uh, we'll, if we can ever get done with the word elect, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get there sooner than later. All right. There's also three uses in Luke, all referring to the Jewish people. Luke 1, 68, 77, and chapter 7, verse 16. There are only two other uses in the New Testament, and one of those refers to Israel, Hebrews 10, 30, and the other to all believers on the new earth, Revelation 21, 3. Now, it's interesting that when it does say his people, and it seems to include everyone, that's the new heavens and the new earth at the end of Revelation. Did I say Revelations? If I did, I apologize. In the book of Revelation, right? It's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations, right? So um, that that's interesting. So Revelation 21.3 is the only use of his people in the Bible that refers to anything other than Israel. Joseph would have rightly understood his people to refer to Israel. That That's possible. However, Joseph would have been puzzled. Why was the angel saying that Israel was the people of the uh, was the people of the coming son of Mary. Why didn't the angel say he will save God's people from their sins? The answer is because this baby to be born of to born to be born is God, God in the flesh. Joseph also would have been puzzled with the prophecy that this coming baby will save Israel from their sins. When would this future salvation occur? How could this coming baby save the nation? Jesus came to save Israel from her sins. But didn't he come to save the world, not just Israel? Yes. Now they're going to say yes and no. Now this may be where you start getting into a more very clearly defined dispensational perspective. All right. I would say clearly God knows all things from the future. So if he's sending Jesus to save people, he's saving every, he's coming to save everyone God intended him to save. This gets into particular redemption or limited atonement, election, gets into some of those specific issues. But I will say this, I think that there's at least a reasonable, I think it's reasonable to say that, is it, to say that Matthew 121, that's referring to Jesus saving Israel from their sins, which fits in perfectly with the context of the prophecy of Judah, well, needing to be saved, not just from their horrible situation that they were facing with, you know, Syria and Israel coming upon them, and then the Assyrians were going to come upon them and cause all kinds of problems. All of these things that they were facing, ultimately, Emmanuel was going to come and save Judah, save Israel from their sins, which then gives the idea that in the book of Romans, talking about all Israel will be saved, that God will redeem Israel at some point in the future through because of the death of Jesus Christ, because of his finished work, right? That, that raises lots of questions. Not saying it's perfect, just saying it's at least plausible, possible. Now, I know Reformed people are going to just completely ignore, reject it. I understand. That's okay. I just, I just want us to at least consider it. All right. They say yes and no. Yes, we know from John 3, 16 that he came to save, that is to give everlasting life to all who believe in him. He wishes all to be saved in the sense of having everlasting life. And, and we talked about that on Sunday, about that. They, they make a reference to 1 Timothy 2, 4. We can get into some of the, how we should understand that. We don't have time to get into that now. And by his death on the cross, he made that possible for all who simply believe in him. This is the idea that 
we can get into the discussion between particular redemption, where Christ died, the idea that all right, unlimited atonement, he died for everyone. He made salvation possible, but he didn't actually save anybody. He just made it possible, and then you have to believe in order to get the salvation versus, no, he died and shed his blood to save a specific people that he will save. Get into, we can get into a whole discussion about that. All right. But, there, but the, this text says he, he came to save his people, which is clearly Israel, from their sins, not to save the world from its sins. Not only does his people not mean the same thing as the world in, uh, in John 3.16, but in addition, the word save doesn't mean the same thing here as it does in John 3.17 or Ephesians 2.5 and 8 or in John 3.17 in Ephesians 2.5 and 8. Save refers to having everlasting life as both contexts make crystal clear. However, save refers to something else as we shall now see. Okay, so what they're saying is that not only is his people limited to Israel, the saving here from their sins is not saving them for everlasting life. Now that, that one makes me, now that one I have to really pause and go, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about that. That saving Israel from their sins, I can see that. That that seems plausible. To say save here doesn't mean the same thing. I do know the word save has a, lar- a wide range of meaning. We've talked about this in our in discussions about James and other times that that sometimes save can simply be, be be the idea of being saved from a temporal some kind of temporal disaster, temporal danger from a storm, from a earthquake, from well a nation trying to destroy you. All right, so it can definitely have a wide range of meaning. It, it, how is it? But when it says save them from their sins, okay, well we'll see what they what they have to say here. The future salvation from sins will be deliverance from Gentile domination. Now, this gets very dispensational here. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a big question mark about this one. Let's see what they have to say here. The name Jesus is derived from the Hebrew verb, which means to save. Hence, you call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. It is a play on words. So the fact that, you know, Jesus means to save, it's, it's, it's really emphasizing Jesus is here, he's, he's here to save his people from their sins. It's really dri- driving that home. But what does it mean that he will save his people from their sins? Those who see this verse speaking of Jesus giving eternal life and the forgiveness of sins to Israel, to Israel or Israel and the church miss the point entirely. All right. France goes so far as to strongly deny what the text actually affirms. France writes, salvation from sins. Here warns the reader not to expect this Messiah to conform to the more popular hope of national liberator. But this is a pr- precisely what the believer, the believe, believing reader of Matthew should understand, that Jesus is the national liberator of Israel. Compare Matthew 1.21 and the future tense will save with John one twenty nine, and the present tense takes away. Jesus took away the sins of the world at Calvary, but he did not save his people at that time. He will not save his people until his second coming. Israel is still in her sins. Israel has been under Gentile domination for centuries. From AD 70 until 1948, Israel was not even a nation. Since 1948, Israel has been a very small nation surrounded by many nations that work hard to destroy it. 
The reason Israel was dispossessed for nearly 2,000 years and the reasons that it is a minor world power today is because of her sins. In the book of Judges, we see cycles of sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. Each of the judge would deliver Israel from her sin was a type of the coming Messiah who will once and for all deliver Israel from her sins. When the Messiah saves Israel from her sins, she will never lapse back into sin and will never fall under judgment again. Judges 6 is a good example of the salvation spoken of in Matthew 121. Look at Judges 6, 14 through 15. The angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord is Jesus before his incarnation. Not, not, now, there's some dis, maybe disagreement about that, but I think a lot of people would argue that's true. Here the Messiah is commending Gideon to do for Israel, temporary fix, what he himself will one day do once and for all. Gideon was used by God to deliver Israel from their sins, but they slipped back into rebellion. Then repentance, a new judge saving them. Rebellion again, new repentance, new judge saving them. Rebellion again. Jesus is Israel's ultimate judge. He, will, he is the one who will save the nation from its sins. Jesus offered the kingdom to that generation. This is very dispensational here. If it had been responded to in faith and repentance, then at that time, Jesus would have saved Israel from Gentile domination. Now, there's a lot of dispute about that. Not everyone believes that. I'm not saying you need to even have to believe that in regards to figure out what's going on in Matthew 121. Just know that that's a very clear dispensational teaching. I was taught that in at least two or three of the schools I attended. Zechariah 9.9 was fulfilled in AD 33 when Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem. We call this Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9.10 has not yet occurred. The salvation of verse 9 is defined in verse 10. The Lord Jesus did not save Israel on Palm Sunday. He will save Israel when he returns. There is a big gap between verse 9 and verse 10. But there didn't have to be. If Israel had received her Messiah, then he would have died on the cross, evidently uh, by Roman instigation. This time, then Daniel's 70th week would have occurred. Israel's salvation would have occurred very soon after Jesus' death with no long wait. Now, again, that's a lot of assumptions saying it could have happened, but obviously God knew it was never going to happen because, well, God is all-knowing. We find the same truth in Ezekiel 37, the dry bones rising chapter, and in Romans eleven twenty six. Romans eleven twenty six, like Matthew 1, says that Jesus will save Israel in the future. At the end of the tribulation, all surviving Jews will be deliver, believers will be believers and fellowship with God. At that point, the whole nation will be delivered from God's wrath. The promise to Joseph is not merely of everlasting life for Jews. It is the promise of worldwide dominion and deliverance from the terrible consequences of Israel's sins. Now that's where, so they were saying it would have two ideas. Yes, Israel will be saved from their sins in a spiritual way, and they will be saved from the consequences of their sins. The fact that they have, in a sense, be set aside till the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then all the promises given to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled, and many people will say that will be the millennial kingdom if you are a dispensational premillennialist, all right? But even if you're not, is it possible? Put it this way. If you can make a good hermeneutical argument that Matthew 121 is a promise to save Israel from their sins, and that's who it's referring to, then you have to at least take a moment to pause and reconsider all of your views about eschatology. I think that's fair. You have to at least go, well, wait a minute. If God's going to save Israel from their sins, how, when, how? 
When did, when does this occur? And then you've got to go to Romans 11, where it says all Israel will be saved. And then you've got to go, well, wait a minute. How do I reconcile this with my view of eschatology? You, you can ignore everything else. You have to at least consider that much. All right. Then they add this. How does this apply to us? First, realize that Matthew 121 concerns the nation of Israel and that that it has not yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. It's not a promise of spiritual victory for every Christian. Second, long to be chosen, second, long to be cho- to be chosen to share in the Messiah's rule. Luke 19, 16 through 26. 2 Timothy 2.12. Know that not all church-age believers will will rule with Christ. Only those believers who will faithfully endure will rule. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5. Right, A lot of of issues there. We won't go through all of that. Third, pray for the coming salvation of Israel and peace until the tribulation begins. Remember that there is an eternal future for Israel. Fourth, always remember that God is faithful to his promises. I'm glad he fulfills his promise promise to a stiff-necked Israel. He is faithful. That means he will be faithful to you and me as well. Now, there are some issues in that. I will be first to admit it. I think what is interesting here is that we quote Matthew one twenty one at this time of year, and I don't know if we've quoted correctly, because if his people is a reference to Israel, then that makes the promise very powerful in light of, say, Isaiah 7 where, hey, hey, Ahaz, you need a sign. Well, I'm going to give a sign to the house of David. The the sign is going to go to the house of David, and that is a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, and we're going to call him, his name is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And God was, did show up in Jesus Christ in the flesh, and he comes, and one of the things he came to do was to save Israel from their sins and to fulfill all of the promises made to Israel, no matter how stiff-necked, no matter how rebellious, even if they have been set aside for the Gentiles to come in, God is going to keep that promise to Israel. And at least in Matthew 121, it has more of an implication and application to Israel than to us, and maybe we should not be so ready to rip it out of its original context. Maybe, I don't know. Some of these other things, I'm not so sure about. I think some of these things we can call into question. Listen, let me make it very clear. I don't think that, if I believe that God is not done with Israel and God has some future plan with Israel, I don't have to necessarily believe that the kingdom was offered to Israel and they rejected. I don't have to go into all of those discussions about how that took place. I don't even have to really go into rapture, no rapture, tribulation. How does a lot of that happen in Revelation? How do I understand all of that? I don't even have to go into that. I think the only thing it will lead me to have to consider is, okay, if God made these promises to Israel and they've never been fulfilled and he's going to save Israel, when does that happen and how does it happen? Which at least raises the possibility that the only way to make that work in any meaningful way would be a literal thousand-year reign with Christ ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. That would be the only way to even possibly make some of it make sense. And I'm not saying that's perfect either, but I'm saying that we have to at least consider that you have to at least go, well, wait a minute. If God is faithful to his promises and he made these promises to Israel, and if I don't replace Israel with the church, then Israel has to get the promises. And if they have to get the promises, I got to figure out where they're going to get them. And the only possible idea is a millennial kingdom. 
That, or you can be an amillennialist and believe that you're in the millennial kingdom now. And I say this jokingly, but I am dead serious at the same time. If this is the millennial kingdom now, I want my money back because this is a ripoff because this, this, this is not a great millennial kingdom the way I understand the millennial kingdom to be with the lamb and the lion laying down together and everything is, no, this, this is not. So I, I, I used to be more uh, amill. Now I'm, I, I definitely believe God is not done with Israel. And I believe some of those promises have to apply to Israel and that God has got to give them to Israel at some point in the future. And the only thing I can see is a literal millennial kingdom. That's where I am now, but I'm always willing to be challenged on that. And I, and look, I, I've read all kinds of books from all millennial position. I had to go to school. I had to go to an all mill school and write papers from an all mill position. So I've written papers from the pre-mill position, the all mill position. The only thing I have, I never gone to a post-mill school. I never went to a post-millennial school. I went to all kinds of other schools and I had to go through the crazy meltdown of Harold Camping, losing his absolute mind who went from a, what I would consider a pretty straightforward, reformed, amillennialist to predicting the world was going to come to an end in 1994 and then moving it to 2000, whatever, and, and then believing the church age was over and you had to leave your church. If you didn't leave your church, you got the mark of the beast. He lost his absolute mind. I, had, I was a part of his school when all of that started unfolding and horrible. That was crazy stuff. But um, so I just think that this is at least an interesting thing to consider. So I would just challenge you. What do you think? Matthew 121. What do you think when it says he will save his people from their sins? Does that add to the fact that this promise was specifically of a virgin having a child and call his name Emmanuel was specifically given in a sense to the house of David and a time when they were facing, well, domination, destruction, captivity. Is, is it interesting that then that promise could be then, see, he's come to save his people from all of the years and years and years and years of being dominated by these earthly authorities. The time will come that they will be saved from their sins and be saved from the consequences of their sins. Is it, is it possible that we've, we've misinterpreted it? You can let me know what you think. I think, it, I think, uh, Okay. Oh, wait. Uh, okay. Uh, I missed uh, this comment. Uh, someone said, I see the issue. All right. Uh, I, I'll just ask this person to clarify, which issue are you referring to? And did I, did I articulate it clear enough that you understand what I'm trying to say and trying to ensure that I fair to all the different perspectives, I'm trying to make sure. And I, and for those who are not used to listening, when we do all of our podcasts are done live and we have a live chat, if you have the Spreaker app, you can always participate in it as well. And uh, we should have probably done this on uh, Podbean. It's probably what we should have done, but I didn't think about it. So I'm going to give her the opportunity here to uh, see which issue she was referring to. Or she can always email me at newsif at yahoo.com. But I just want to, I don't like ending a live broadcast thinking I may have left something confusing. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, the one about, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't see, I didn't see the, so the, she was referring to something way, 40 uh, something minutes ago. Okay. For two, two hours ago. All right. So I apologize. She was talking about the, the three different choices and how to interpret uh, Matthew 121. You only have a couple of choices and how to interpret that. You really do. And um, you can, 
you can see how you want to, to interpret that. Once again, I just think it demonstrates what we've done with Isaiah 7. I hope what that's demonstrated to you. And for those who have not heard that, go listen to the Bible study exercise in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8. Hopefully what that demonstrated to you is that so many times in the Christmas season, everybody just runs to Isaiah 7 and say, look, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and rip it out of its historical context. Completely don't even bother handling it in any meaningful way. I'm not saying pastors won't mention it, but I really won't deal with all of the complexities found in, in that section. And so it just becomes a verse that we quote around Christmas time. And the average Christian has no real conception of all of the issues surrounding it. And Matthew one twenty one is another one where we just quote it at Christmas time, right? At that little candlelit, you know, candlelight service on Christmas Eve that many churches do because they got to be closed the next day. And then you just, you quote it and everybody's like, oh, wasn't that beautiful? Oh, the kids came up there. Look, the little girl was dressed like Mary. And oh, look at that. The little boy. Oh, isn't that funny? Oh, look how cute they are. Oh, let's take a bunch of pictures for social media. And it, it's, and everybody loves it and it's cute. But when they leave, they have no understanding of the prophecies, of the context, of the theological implications, the theological issues. So everyone has a nice little hallmark moment. It's great. It's wonderful. They got a lot of pictures to show the kids when they were when they grow up. Oh, look at you when you were little and you you were Joseph in the Christmas candlelit service, whatever the case may be. Everyone loves those things. I mean, that's like it's like drugs to some people. Oh, I love this stuff. They it's it's emotional. It's it's just it captures the essence of the season. They love everything about it. Everybody's happy. The pastor's happy. Nobody's complaining at the pa- everyone's just it's it's a wonderful time of the season. And yet the church remains completely in darkness when it comes to doctrine, theology, and how to actually deal with some of these texts. Now, I know I sound like you know, Scrooge, I sound like, you know, Grinch who stole Christmas. I'm not trying to be like that. It's just sometimes I just look at what Christmas has turned into. And it's just like, we want to reduce it to an emotional thing instead of a season to study the absolute difficult, complex and theological passages related to the entire event of the incarnation of the son of God. I mean, let's think about it. And I know I'm getting ready to offend some people. Please don't get offended. Please don't get offended. Please don't get offended for what I'm going to say. Too many times I've said in churches, going through this whole little routine of the little Christmas Eve service, where they have the kids, you know, someone reads the Christmas story and they have some kids act it out. And let me tell you, I I know I'm getting ready to offend people. Most of the time, the star the focus of those events are the children and not the babe born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The star of the show is the emotion, the mood, the lighting, the candles, the kids. The, what, if, they, if they bring a live animal into the sanctuary, the camel, all of that is, gets the spotlight and baby Jesus gets forgotten relatively quick. Even though we're saying, no, the season is about, no, the season is about turning it into a Hallmark movie for our emotional need to have something to be a part of the season. I know that sounds, this is the kind of thing that got me kicked off Christian radio, right? The thing that got me off kicked, uh, kicked off Christian radio is I called into question churches 
whole Easter practices, which doesn't make it about the resurrected Christ. It makes it about eggs and breakfast and lunch and nice clothes. And, 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 I, and I was so, somewhat of a, a rebel. My wife can attest to my being a rebel. I, when it used to be Easter, I would basically tell my family, find the oldest clothes we can wear. Find the oldest things. We, we are not participating in the reindeer games. I'm going to go. We're not going to dress up. Because when we're all dressing up, it's about new outfits. It's not about the resurrected Christ. It's about the Easter eggs that the kids are going to have the Easter egg. It's about everything else. It's about the potluck. It's about the the breakfast at sunrise, whatever the church does. And it's like all of that takes away from the focus is supposed to be on the incarnation or the resurrection. I mean, one of the most complex, absolute complex theological concepts is the incarnation of the eternal son of God, true God, true man, hypostatic union, Chalcedonian definition. These are the things that we should talk about about Christmas and we reduce it to the, to the most simplistic, emotional thing that we can and 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 Christians never understand the theology. Now I know I want to reduce it to a seminary, you know, two hour discussion on the incarnation. And I know that my way is not always the correct way either. There's got to be a a happy medium there. I should probably be a little bit more making it maybe a little bit something more beautiful. Maybe I should be better at that. I, there's still a lot of things I won't allow or do because I just think some of it just takes actually takes away from Jesus. But at the same time, it's got to be the other. All right. <laughs> not, no, 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 no. I'm not saying, I'm not saying do what I did. Okay. I'm not saying that I'm the perfect example. I'm not saying that, hey, hey kids, it's Easter. We're going to go to church looking like we're homeless. Okay. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that what I did was right because sometimes I'm, I tend to have a rebellious streak in me. That's one thing. That's one of my strengths and one of my weaknesses. My strength is I don't go. I, I didn't go with the crowd from the very first day I walked into high school. They said, you got to do this because it's freshman hazing. And I'm like, I'm not doing one thing you tell me to do. I don't care what it means. No, I'm not participating. I'm not going to participate in your games. I'm not going to do it at this is how messed up it was in West Texas. In West Texas, we had a thing. This is and You're going to think I'm making this up, but this is literally the truth. We had something called Slave Day. I'm not making this up, all right? Jim Ned High School, right? Slave Day. Everyone came to the gymnasium. You think I'm making this up. You had to come to school, if you were a freshman, wearing jeans and a white T-shirt. You then walked into the gymnasium and you stood up on this podium like it was high up and people, the students would place bids to purchase you and then they could do whatever they wanted to do for you for a day. Slave day, literally like a slave auction. You can't even like how utterly insane was it, right? Well, I said not participating, not today, not tomorrow, not next year. I'm not, and which then made me a target of some severe bullying. And it got so bad that the teachers had to pull me aside when we got ready to go into the gymnasium because I told everyone I'm not participating. The, the teachers pulled me aside and said, you, ha- you will participate. We will buy you because if we don't, 
We cannot guarantee your safety. That's how bad it got. But I would not partic- I would not go along with any, I don't care anything the high school said. If they said, we have to do a prom. Why do we have to do prom? I don't, a- a- every tradition I called into question. Well, that same fleshly attitude came into, into Christianity. Well, the church does this. Well, why? Now, in some ways, that's a strength because I don't go along with the crowd, don't give into peer pressure, and I'm not willing to play the reindeer games and not just going with the template everyone gives me. The bad side about my perspective is what I have a tendency to do is if everyone says A, I just say B because it, it, everything in my body says I can't go along with the crowd. If, if 50 people are going that way, I know I've got to go the other way. And sometimes I'm not doing it biblically. I'm just doing it out of the flesh. Sometimes what can be your strength can be your weakness. But I do believe the church, I do believe that my willingness to go against the crowd does give me maybe the ability to speak out against some practices in the church that I just think are not biblical. I mean, if Christmas is about Christ, let's make it about Christ and not everything else. If Easter is about the resurrection, let's make it about that. And and, and I don't even like the word Easter, but you get the idea. Just we have to, if we're going to say it's about something, then be about it. Don't say it's about something and then we then we we just show that it's not actually about that. And the only reason I mention all of that, I know you're thinking that I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit. I'm not, is because I think when it comes to some of these theological issues surrounding these very famous Christmas passages, the reason they're never addressed is the church doesn't have time to address them because they're bit planning their big Christmas extravaganza. They got to have that big Christmas Eve candlelight service so they can ensure the church is is shut down and locked up on Christmas Day because we've all got other things to do instead of actually talk doctrine and theology about the absolute miracle of the incarnation. So I I just think that there's got to be a balance. My perspective is not always the correct one, but I think it's one that must be considered, all right? And I'm going to just check something really quick. Because after so many comments show up on my computer screen, the rest of them disappear. So I want to make sure I haven't missed anything. All right. Okay, good. All right. So I just want to make sure that, yeah, my, my, pers- my way of handling things is not always the correct way. But there needs to be, I think there needs to be a serious challenge to many churches for what are, the, what are we trying to do? I mean, come on, Matthew one twenty one, Isaiah 7. There's some serious hermeneutical theological issues here. How about we dig into that? So when Christmas is over, we don't have a couple of cute pictures on social media of our kids, but we have actual understanding of the word of God. I prefer understanding of the word of God. Most people prefer something else. That's why my church is small. (laughs) And, And the churches who have everything else, they're big. From a human perspective, I'm a fool. But from the state of the church, I think I'm right that the church is biblically illiterate because the church puts everything in front of actual growing in knowledge and understanding. Maybe I'm wrong. You can, you can, I look, there's plenty of, and, and let me make it very clear. There's a lot of good churches who I think lose their minds when it comes around Christmas but I won't in any way say that diminishes the good they do the rest of the time. I just think they turn Christmas into something other than what it should be about. They will tell you it's about Christ, but it becomes about this, just absolutely this big production 
and, you know, living nativity, animals and camels and donkeys. And it, like, they, they go all in and it just it becomes a spectacle. Remember the birth of Christ, if you think about it, wasn't a spectacle. It's in a manger. Most of the people didn't even know it was happening. Maybe we can just get back to remembering and worshiping the incarnation of Christ instead of turning it into a spectacle so that we miss Christ. Just just a thought. And now much for you to consider on Matthew 121. All right. I know we got into eschatology there, but I just don't get don't get caught up in the eschatology of it. Just Matthew 121. Is that about Jesus saving his people from the sins? And if is that Israel? And if that's Israel, then think of all the possible implications that arises from it and then connect it back to Isaiah 7 and Romans, uh, Romans 11. All right, I'll stop right there. You can email me at newsif at yahoo.com. I'm sure this is going to generate a lot of lengthy emails, all right? <laughs> and I, 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 yeah, I may have to disconnect. No, I'm not going to disconnect my email, but newsif news at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. I will try to be back and hear, do, you know, try to do at least one more thing, maybe two more things. We'll see. At least one more thing if I can come up with what to do. I'm going to do something. So uh, I'll be back on the air here shortly. All right. God bless.